Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of Sports Science and Performance at the San Antonio Spurs, Javi Schelling. Thanks for tuning in to episode 299 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So absolutely delighted to get Javi on for this episode today. So given his experience across a high performance department in the NBA, as well as Spain, we discussed the role of the sports scientist and how that differs across Europe and compared to the USA. Then we move into some of the work that he's published on sports technology, whether it be um, choosing sports technology or going through the process of implementing that technology. So innovation, we also chat about innovation and how that how innovation is driven um, at the Spurs. We also discuss the data, managing big data and some of the key areas where young sports scientists should be focusing their attention to allow them to move with the industry and evolve. So really, really interesting chat. Then we finish off with some of his thoughts on high intensity interval training after his chapter in Hit Science. So really, really interesting chat with Javi, someone I've wanted to get on for a long time. And one positive thing that's come out of this lockdown is that people have a little bit more time to come on the podcast for a chat. So I really appreciate Javi's time and I'm sure you'll love this episode. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro, and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense, and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, Head over to their website, imeasureu.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureu. So without further ado, over to the episode with Javi Schelling. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I'm delighted to welcome Javi Schelling. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Really do appreciate your time. I know it's a, 
as we discussed, a pretty wild time with lots going on, especially over there. So really appreciate you fitting me into the into the schedule as you get back to playing. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, would you mind just giving a bit of background on you? What are you doing at the Spurs? What you've done previously? Yeah, what's going on? Yeah, um, I'm the director of performance, uh, sports science and performance at uh, the San Antonio Spurs. This is my sixth season. I'm born in Barcelona. Um, and when I was three, actually, I moved to Argentina, where Argentina, where I spent six to seven years, and then I went back to, to Barcelona. I started playing basketball uh, at that age, about nine years old, um, and basketball has been my sport since then. Um, I did a, a degree, I have a degree on sports science, I have a couple uh, masters on uh, exercise physiology, uh, team sports performance, uh, advanced research uh, techniques. I have a PhD on exercise physiology as well. Um, and before moving to the US, uh, six years ago, I was in, in Spain, in the Spanish first division um, in basketball as well uh, for 10 years. So that's pretty much it. 15 plus years professional basketball. Um, and that's my background. Nice. How did the move to the US come around? Yeah, that was a weird time, actually. Um, it's one of those things. Uh, uh, I don't remember the, the San Antonio Spurs in, in 2014. Uh, they are looking for a sports scientist. Uh, they are actually uh, competing at the time for the for the title. Actually, they will win the title that, that summer. Um, they contacted a headhunters company uh, in the UK, actually. Uh, Sporting Health, I believe is the name. Um, they reached to this profile, I was one of the people that they reached to. I sent my CV. Honestly, it's one of those things that you never think it's going to happen, but you do it and see what happens. Um, and the, 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 uh, the ball started rolling. Uh, I had uh, several calls with UK first. Uh, then there was silence for a few weeks. Obviously, they were playing the final, the NBA finals. And then I started uh, conversations with the franchise itself, and, and I had a um, final personal interview in San Antonio, uh, and I was the lucky guy, um, and I can move right away. So you, your first season in the NBA was with the NBA champions? With the, yeah, with, at the time, NBA champions. A, li a little pressure, a little pressure. <laughs> How was that moving culturally for you? Ah, uh, it's brutal. Uh, it's it's a completely different. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the people think that San Antonio and uh, in Texas is pretty similar to Spain because it's close to Mexico and there is a lot of Latin uh, culture here, which, which is true. But but it's still uh, completely different. Um, yeah, it's it, it's uh, all around. You need to be very flexible, open-minded, and, and adapt. Uh, is probably what we miss the most is is the food. Uh, and the good wine, but uh, other than that, uh, the truth is that even though there are a lot of differences, culturally speaking, um, here in San Antonio, it, it, it's very family friendly and very easy, uh, very welcoming. So it was fairly easy and especially this franchise is, is family first and, and made things very, very easy for me and my family. So it was it was pretty easy. What was the state of sports science over in the, in the NBA? back in 2014. Were you one of the first sports scientists? No, I think, if I'm not wrong, uh, Mark Simpson uh, in OKC was actually the first uh, sports scientist, actually from UK, probably uh, you know him. Um, but there weren't too many. I mean, um, 
just a handful, uh, less, less than six teams had the actual role of the sports scientist, uh, applied sports scientist. Um, now that has grown, but I think that is something that maybe we, we, we touch later on in the conversation, but uh, what has happened in the US is that there is like a transformation. There are some sports scientists uh, with that role and others are transformations within the organization. So the, the strength coach becomes the sports scientist. Um, so depending on how you count the sports scientists, maybe I would say that now half of the teams have that role, uh, regardless of what's the background of the person that is covering that role. So yeah, but it's still a long, a long, goal, a long way to go. So in terms of your roles and responsibilities, and you're, I suppose that the expectation from the organization in terms of, yeah, what's expected of you as the sports scientist, how's that changed? Oh, has that changed over the last six years? Your role day to day and the expectation of you? Yeah, I think that the, the, the first biggest change that I lived is the difference in, in how we in, the Spain, in Spain see a sports scientist and how the U.S. sees a sports scientist. And I think that this is a pretty important uh, topic because I have this conversation with a lot, lots of colleagues. Do we need to call ourselves a sports scientists or are we just the strength coaches that know how to use Excel or R or, or Python? Um, well, uh, I, I don't like to, to create new titles if you, don't need, if you don't need them, but the truth is that there is a, there is a particular thing in the U.S. and it is that, that to become a, uh, officially to become a strength coach in the NBA, you you need to have the CSCS. That's what you are required, uh, and that's it. Um, the more experience you have, the more chances you have to become an NBA strength coach. Now, uh, a sports scientist is something else, not better or worse. It's, it's slightly different, and, and basically the difference is that the sports scientist is um. Is objective thinker or a critical thinker that tries to have a, a method uh, to search for an answer. Um, and you can call that scientific method, even though there are uh, philosophers and epistemologists that don't want to call it that way. But what I mean by that is that you have a way to, you have a problem, you have a question, and you have a way to approach it, uh, analyze it, and create new, new knowledge. Um, and that is, you, you can use that methodology for any uh, question. It can be for physiology, it can be for strength training, it can be for nutrition response, it can be for the business side and, and talent identification. Um, but I think that that difference is important. I don't know if the title is necessary to differentiate, but in Spain, a sports scientist was equal to a strength coach. But internationally speaking, a sports scientist and a strength coach are, have two clear different roles to fill. And I think that that difference is pretty important. So do you, if, with your position specifically at the Spurs, I don't want to, please tell me if we need to move away, but are you, are you, is a strength and, is a strength and conditioning running parallel to the sports science? Or? Right. Yeah, no, that, that's a very good question. No, and that's why, that's why it was my, my biggest difference because I was coming from Spain where I was covering 50-50, I was doing all the uh, sports science duties, uh, data management uh, and, and reporting, um, data analysis and execution of um, strength and conditioning sessions, 
workload management with the coaches. Um, here, basically due to the staffs are bigger, there are more resources, uh, human resources and economical resources, um, there is more uh, specialization. So I was uh, here my first year, I was just the applied, just the applied sports scientist. Uh, and we had basically to create that field pretty much from scratch. Um, and I was focused on that, uh, learning uh, how things were done in a five-time uh, NBA champion, champion, which uh, it's very important to keep in mind that context, and, and learning from that, learning the ropes, and, and seeing where um, my knowledge and my skill sets could help to the program. Instead of coming from outside and saying, okay, this is what we will do, it's just learn what they are doing because they have done it pretty well, and, and then implement on top of that. And, and that's what we did. So here, the sports scientist has a specific role, and we have then a group of strength coaches that focus on execution. Uh, now, in my particular case, I can be more involved in, in, in the weight room and, and on court because I'm also a basketball coach and I'm also a strength and conditioning coach, so I'm, I feel comfortable with both. But a sports scientist can have other backgrounds. There are sports scientists that are psychologists, sports scientists that are and nutritionists, the sports scientists that are uh, data scientists. Um, and all those backgrounds are, are okay, as long as you understand the context where you're, where you're working and, and what are your limitations in, in terms of knowledge. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that that differentiation, it, it's pretty relevant. With, with the US and their, their traditional, I suppose, root of S&C and that being more ingrained in the culture versus sports science, how important was that for you, and maybe one of the big reasons you got the job, that you were the SNC coach as well as the the sports scientist? You were doing both, rather than the pure sports science with very little understanding and this was integration with the strength and conditioning. Yeah, um, I think that that uh, or that's what, what they told me. I mean, I think one of the things that made them give me the job was more knowing about the sport more than knowing about the strength and conditioning and i think that that's very important because um and it's a very common mistake in mistake in sports science you you can be an outstanding data analyst analyst or or data scientist or very good physiologist but if you are missing the point of the constraints of the sport or the constraints of the competition or the constraints of the organization uh it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how much you know. It's going to be really hard to gain the trust uh, and buy-in from the organization, and it's going to make it possible for you, and, and it's going to generate a lot of frustration for you and your colleagues to actually build something. Um, I was starting the other way around, to be honest. As I said earlier, I mean, I was going to a, a, a successful organization, understanding the sports, because it's, it's the sport that I lived since I was a, a kid. Um, so I was reverse engineering, if that makes sense, uh, trying to learn from them and implementing uh, little by little uh, on that organization. On top of that, I've been a strength coach, so the way that I communicate with the strength coaches was, was way easier um, because we, 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 we do, I know what they like, I know what they dislike, and I know the interactions between strength coaches and basketball coaches, and, and I think that that integration was, was the, the key point. You've done quite a bit of work in communicating in your research, in communicating the, the, the sports technology and trying mm -hmm. 
get people to understand the integration of sports technology and the process you guys have gone through when implementing it. Do you think the role of sports technology and the sports scientist have become very linked and linked in a way that maybe for the outsider or even the insider, when someone says sports scientist, they just think sports tech guy, the guy that's on the laptop, the guy that's on Excel in R, like you said, is that still the case? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Um, and I say unfortunately, um, but I mean, it's understandable. Uh, yeah, the generation and the production of technology over the last 10 years has been exponential. I mean, there is so much out there. Uh, and, and of course, if, if you are an objective thinker, in order to be objective, you need information to assess that information and to make an informed decision. And technology is a mean to gather that information, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is not having the same technology that your neighbor has or having more technology that your neighbor has or, or having more technology that the actual champion uh, has. I mean, technology is very important to understand as a mean for your objective thinking to have the information to make better decisions. Uh, keeping that in mind, uh, one thing is gathering information. If that is the key component, there are two very important factors when you want to implement technology. One is actually three. Uh, the first one is, is it reliable and valid? So is, is the technology that you are trying to implement in, is telling what they claim uh, uh, is, is, is reporting? Uh, if yes, okay, next question is, um, is, is it answering a question or a need in your organization or is creating a new question? And this is very common. So you are adding technology that is actually not solving a problem, is bringing new information. And we know that we have so much information right now that if you are actually adding more technology, not because you need it, but because it's cheap or good or because you want to have the same that the neighbor, you are adding more complexity to your decision-making process and you're slowing down and probably doing worse on your program. And the last, the last thing is um, how easy it is to implement based on, 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 on time and efficiency, meaning, okay, the technology is answering your question, is valid, but it takes three days to run a report or it takes 45 minutes for the player to actually gather the data. Yeah, technology is great, but it's not implementable. So you have to understand why you want it. You have to make sure that it's valid and you have to make sure that it's implementable in your program, in your constraints, in that sport, and considering the background from the player and the staff and the organization. And if all those three uh, check marks are okay, then you can think of implementing that. Uh, the, the fourth question, if those three, which are pretty hard questions, are okay, is cost-benefit uh, ratio. So how much I have to invest and how much I'm, I'm gaining uh, uh, acquiring this technology. Um, I think that those four points are a must in any uh, vetting process. Uh, if you skip one of them, uh, I don't think that the implementation will be successful. And if it's successful, maybe you lose credibility with the players because it's not reliable um, or, or with your front office and management because it's too expensive for how often you are actually using it. So um, I, that's the criteria that 
we, in our research, try to share with our community and, and internally with our organization. Simple question. Would you go in the order? Uh, the first one for sure. Is it covering um, a need or is adding new? Uh, probably that's, that's exactly the order that I would follow. It has to cover first a need. Um, second, it has to be valid. Uh, third, it has to be implementable. And fourth, cost-benefit ratio. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much that. They can overlap, but it's pretty much that, that workflow, yes. With the technology that you implement there on, and just your, I suppose, general beliefs rather than going into the stuff at the Spurs, would you encourage people who are trying to, are looking at different technologies, whether it be athlete tracking, to get that validity and reliability done themselves? And would you invest that time, whether it's doing it yourself or partnering with another organization, i.e. university, to make sure that is valid and reliable in your environment? And I've spoken to a couple of people about this. Uh, Matt Varley, who was at um, over in Qatar, now back in, in, uh, in, uh, in Australia, and Stu Cormack, both talking about this and how important that is. But I also know that there's practitioners out there who will just say, well, I haven't got the time or resources to be able to do that. But would, you, no matter what the circumstance, would you always encourage people to do that? I think that whatever it takes, you have to make sure that what you are using, it's valid. That's the first point. Second point, the, the companies, the technology companies should be required to to meet uh, some standards. And we have to be the ones uh, setting those standards. Uh, for instance, now the NBA and FIFA did it uh, a couple of years ago as well. They are doing their own internal validation and, and, and making sure that the tracking devices that the teams are using uh, are reporting what the companies are claiming. That's great. I mean, I think that that's the way to go. I think that we have to think even broader. I think that there has to be a third-party uh, organization that takes care of betting all technology. That that's very common in the medical community. Why not in the sports community? We're we're moving millions of dollars. So I don't know if that's a branch of the Olympic Committee in each one of the countries. I don't know if it's an international branch, but it, it, that's not. Uh, um, uh, competitive advantage for everyone. That's a, that's a good for everyone. So I think that you will push the requirements in the technology companies because they have to meet that. It's not just adding new metrics. It's, okay, are those metrics actually what you are telling us and are those reliable? I think that what FIFA and NBA did is one big step. I think that the next step is having an international community that actually uh, does that worldwide. Uh, if point one and point two are not there, Point three is the user, and I've done it myself uh, internally here and in Spain. Uh, you have to deal with third parties. We use uh, Southern Research Institute here in Texas. It's a massive engineering um, institute that help us with uh, all the technology to validate that. But in Spain, I did it with universities. Uh, I think that you have to do your homework. And because your credibility is at the stake with the players and the organization, you have to invest as much as is required to make sure that the technology that you're implementing, you are confident. Uh, and, and those three levels are the ones that uh, yeah, ideally we want a third party, but if it's not there, you have to do it. The second point was answering a question. 
not mm-hmm. creating another question. Mm-hmm. In terms of the technology that you've had experience with it in both uh, locations, where does that question come from? Does that question come from you? Does that question come from coaching staff? Mm-hmm. Or a bit of a mixture of both, depending on... Yeah, the way that... Um... I'm pretty structured mentally, um, and the way that I, you know, that we implement technology um, where I've been is, is structured as well. And, and basically, the, the, the background of the reasoning is, is we have two big groups, internal load, load and external load, and, and you want to, those are the questions. So you have, okay, I want to know more about internal load, I want to know more about uh, external load, then you define the KPIs for internal load and external load, and then you find the best technology to gather information on those KPIs. That's the reasoning behind what I want to uh, acquire first. And as you know, um, external load is a slightly easier because external load is basically what the player is doing, how much is moving, and, and there are tracking systems, computer-based tracking systems like Prozone uh, or, or in the NBA second spectrum now, uh, uh, Zebra in NFL, um, but now the, the, the internal load, um, that's different. I mean, it's a very broad um, field that each professional will define themselves. Is it, is it the RPE and psychological and self-perception the metric or is it saliva biomarkers or is it the rate of force development in a counter-movement jump is um, RSI, etc. cetera. Uh, it's, it's on you to define what are the KPIs for you and your sport and what is the best technology uh, following those four points that can answer those questions. So the first step is I have a skeleton of questions that I want to uh, answer. And then sometimes coaches are asking something extra and you put that question in your skeleton and your priority list and you say, okay, that's that's an important one because actually the coach who is coaching the players every day is asking about that. So let's take a look at that and see a technology that's easier to, to implement because it's going to be used if the coach is asking for it. So it's a, it's a little bit of proactiveness and reactiveness. Point number three was easy to implement. Is Have you got some sort of process to assess how easy it is to implement? Check marks, what it does, what it, what it can do, what it can't do. What's your uh, process in making sure that box is ticked? Yeah, I think that that's not uh, that's not a, um, a checklist that we have. Okay. It's more an, an inter- we have a any technology has to allow you for a trial period, right? And and then you in that trial period you will engage the coaches that will use it. And in that trial period you have to make sure that in your program, in your workflow, in the way that you structure your sessions on court, off court, on the weight room, that technology is implemented. In that trial period, you have to make sure that the coaches are not having to go out of out of their way to get that data because that's going to happen the first month and it's not going to happen again. So uh, that trial period allows you to try the technology and say, okay, this technology is answering a question that we have and is it it fits our workflow and those things together will make that the coaches will use it and that will increase the frequency of data collection. And if you have more data collection, uh, it's easier to make decisions, not with one collection every week, but with every session having data. 
another simple question, but I think it may be interesting for people to know. The trial period, and I know that sports tech companies are encouraging people to trial their product, to try to get it within the organization, getting people used to it, getting coaches expecting it, basically. But in terms of that trial period, what what kind of period do you need to get the information that you want? I know the standard's like four weeks, but is that enough for you to get what you need? Well, it, it, it depends on what type of data you are collecting. If, if it's a, if it's a, let's say that it's a full biomechanical assessment that you are trying, you will have a hard time, first of all, uh, getting a trial period for a full Vicon system with force plates and blah, blah, blah. If you're lucky enough and you have it uh, that time, uh, and you are doing it once a week, I would say that one, one month is not enough because you will have four exposures tops with some players. Um, so maybe you want to try that for a longer period, maybe in off season and demo it with your coaches. Uh, that's what we do with, with systems that require more time and are more complex. Um, other systems like, I don't know, um, a VBT uh, device that there are 50 in the market, um, it, with, with a month is, is more than enough. Because basically what you are testing there is, is um, the, the user interface, uh, the data collection process, and the real-time feedback with the player. Um, if that works, um, it, it's just making sure that the coaches like what they are seeing and that the system is customizable enough. So yeah, it depends on the technology. Uh, the more complex the technology and the less frequent the data collection, the longer the period to, to validate if that works or not. Um, yeah. I spoke to Matt Price over at the LA Kings in, in ice hockey few months ago we started talking about innovation and i was i was actually listening to that the other day as i was playing around with with some of the audio that we've that I've, that I've got and i asked the question around where he gets where where he thinks innovation for him comes from and then he started talking about what you've started what you've discussed with are you getting it because it's answering a question or are you getting it because somebody else has got it and i just wondered where you go for not only well i suppose inspiration and innovation are you looking where are you looking are you looking at other countries other sports other 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 industries for your i suppose inspiration to see what's coming next to see what can be implemented uh at your organization yeah well i think that first is important to define what innovation is and, and innovation is is a, is a it's a process, not a state. It's a process of change with the goal of achieving um, competitive advantage or improving performance. And when I say improving performance, I'm not just referring to winning more games, which is obviously the end goal, but improving performance in that uh, sector or department or group or question. Um, now, okay, if it's a process of change to improve performance, um, there are two ways to do that, um, and, and Jorge Wagensberg is a is a is a think was a thinker, um, a Spanish thinker um, that defined innovation in two ways. Is is um, is uh, what is called evolution, or what is related to incremental innovation, uh, and the second uh, way is revolution, which is a disruptive innovation. And I really like it. Is is evolution or revolution? Uh, 
revolution is the is the most attractive because it's really cool. If if you have revolutionary innovation, uh, you are changing the whole thing, and it's very spectacular. But the truth is that we should pay more attention to the evolution part of innovation, which means optimizing and exhaust, exhausting optimization in each one of the processes that you have in place. And, and that's a very tedious and meticulous work uh, where you have to assess all the decision-making processes, all the assessment processes, all the um, um, uh, training methodologies that you have in place, uh, etc. It's endless. And try to answer the question, okay, if I invest this amount of time optimizing this process, how much better in terms of efficiency in, in time that the coach has to spend uh, data uh, collecting the data and actually changing the workout are we gaining so there is like a reversed view in terms of innovation where at the beginning when you start the gains are very minor because it requires a lot of learning curve for the coaching staff to adapt what you're trying to implement there is a lot of gain because they are understanding it's perfect they're investing time and improving the tools you keep investing time and they are very good and they are starting to not gain at the same rate and then is when you have to stop in that field changing that that evolution makes organizations very robust and 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 very yeah, robust is the word and it's not that cool because it's is behind the scenes that you are changing little things but at the end of the day when you look back six years said wow it's a completely different way of working now than six years ago and that evolution or incremental innovation i think that is sometimes disregarded or it's not we don't pay as much attention and and i think that that's critical now disruptive innovation yes i mean let's let's use um virtual reality to to work on skill acquisition it looks really cool it's a completely different we have a whole room only for virtual reality where we use the data from the games and then the player is repeating yeah, that's really cool. Uh, how many times you can do it? How many? How much exposure the player can have, etc., etc., etc. Then we go back to that would be disruptive. That's going to be a game changer when it's implementable, when the cost-benefit ratio is reasonable, um, and when it's valid and reliable, and and the and, and the immersion on the virtual reality is is good enough. Uh, we don't need to get into details in virtual reality right now, but. Um, meanwhile, if you know that that's going to be disruptive at some point, you have to select how, how you want to get there. Maybe it's not stopping everything else and investing now in that because you are losing maybe in processes that will have a big change in your program. So you have to select where you want to be disruptive and how you want to be disruptive and not interfering too much in the day-to-day -day operations. And which processes need to be incrementally improved uh, to optimize your program on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that that differentiation in terms of innovation is, is, is critical and it relates to what we were talking about uh, technology before. So it's good to give a very quick break in the chat with Xavi. Hope you're enjoying part one. So part two carries on a similar theme, but also finishes off with a really interesting chat around his principles on uh, high intensity interval training and like I said the start based on his book chapter in Hit Science. So really 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 interesting chat around uh, Hit and also how we deal with fixture congestion which is a perfect 
uh, perfect time to be discussing that because of obviously the situation we're in and, and, and sports getting back to normal but with, with very congested fixture schedules. So really, really interesting part two coming up. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc., have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. Do you think we're more comfortable with the revolution side of it rather than the evolution side of it? Ripping ripping something out, starting again, going with new, going with better rather than the slower, more methodical evolution? Do you think we're more, maybe not you, but I mean, I'm speaking as a as an industry. Yeah. I suppose not as an industry, as a society. Yeah. Really? yeah. I, I honestly, it's very, very common. I'm not talking about our community now, but it applies to our community as well where you get new into a place and you get rid of everything. Everything was wrong and, and we will start from scratch. That is, I mean, I think that there are counted occasions where that uh, has to be the way, the only way to go. Uh, I think that especially in professional sports, the organization has been around enough to have uh, some foundation that you can select what is good and build on that. And that way it's easier to get the buy-in from the whole organization because you, it's impossible to get rid of the whole organization. So uh, I think it's more efficient money-wise, time-wise, uh, and from an empathy, empathetic point of view as well, uh, build from the commonalities that you think that work. And then at the same time that you optimize what you think that work, you are more disruptive with things that can be improved, but they won't affect the day-to-day. Because disruptive takes time. Disruptive innovation takes time. Uh, if it's disruptive, it's because you are, you are not even improving the answer to a question. You're changing the question. And that means, that means uh, a shift on the paradigm. The whole thing changes. Uh, and for that, you need time to explain. You need time to educate. 
and to have results you need a, a long time. So we don't have to forget that we have to win games this Sunday. So uh, in order to have that balance between uh, changing a lot a program and evolving a program, you have to find how to do that without stopping the machines and, and not producing at all. Is there any examples you can give? And again, please tell me to stop talking about this. But is there any examples you can give where you may have, or someone else, or a previous you may have moved on and moved on the process and done something different when actually you've gone through this process yourself and gone, actually, we can squeeze more out of what we're currently doing rather than moving on to the next thing and therefore like you say the next question yeah i mean i have hundreds of examples actually and and, and unfortunately it, it's pretty common to to um bring some someone in professional sports it's i mean actually i have more examples than non-examples where the head coach of a soccer team x changes it takes with him the 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 fitness coach or the director of performance, they move and then who replaces, changes the whole thing, changes the way that data, changes the, the AMS. I mean, the, the, the way that we collect the data. I mean, it, it, really that's the first thing that we have to, we have to change the, the way that data is collected. Well, it has to be very, very bad to, to that being the first step. Or we do that because it was bad, or we do that because that's what we were doing and we are more comfortable instead of adapting and finding the happy middle between where we are going and where we are coming from. Um, unfortunately, I think that is more the second thing. Uh, you, you, want, you want to, you feel comfortable with what you've been doing and you want to replicate what you are doing. That, that applies for us uh, in the sports science um, community and applies sometimes for coaches, where coaches, instead of adapting to the roster that they have, they want to uh, apply the game style that they have been doing in other teams. If you don't adapt to your roster, it doesn't matter how successful you were in the other team, because this roster is completely different. So it happens all the time. I mean, there are plenty of examples. Uh, and I'm, I'm a true believer on, on evolution first and revolution second. Uh, revolution it can be, um, as the, it's redundant, but it, it will be a revolution, which implies that it will give you a huge uh, competitive advantage, maybe for a short period of time, but that's, that's enough. That's worth investment. But you don't have to forget the day-to-day -day operations. We have to perform every weekend. And in the NBA case, we play every other day. So you have to offer services, elite services every day. And if you are disruptive from day one, that will suffer. So you have to find the, the, the right balance. And examples are a lot, lots of it. It's, it unfortunately, it, it's very common to get rid of everything that was there and replace it for what you have been doing before instead of finding the, the optimization model. The athlete tracking example is one that I'm familiar with. And you see it all the time, like certain practitioners will move, and you just know that that practitioner is going to take that athlete tracking company with them and get rid of the old one. And you'll go on Sky Sports and the two weeks ago it was one and now it's another. And you just think, how long does that change actually take? Probably physically, like two seconds, because instead of putting one in one pouch, you put it the other one in the pouch. 
but just the workflow of what happens off the back of that and how long that actually takes and how much disruption that causes within the workflow of of what happens on the reporting side and the analysis side like what happens to all the rest of the data that's gone before it is that sorry historical data you yeah. lose the power of data doing that so i i agree 100 tracking is a very common is a very common one but with dvt is the same um and yeah, it's endless, endless yeah. the, the examples so let's move on to the the amount of data that we're collecting. So we've mentioned VBT, we've mentioned athlete tracking, we could go on and on and on. How are you guys are, from your experience, what would be the ideal, not to lean too much on the, what you're doing at the Spurs, but how can we manage that and how are you managing that? Because as we've said, people are adding and adding and all of a sudden it just gets bigger and this machine gets bigger and to actually keep answering them questions it just gets more complex so how how are we how are, how are you and how would you advise people to manage that yeah well i mean you have to have one sentence in mind in terms of data management is is you have to be careful at the sentence very famous paralysis by analysis right you you have several guests that have used the same sentence yeah, so if you really, it's a very simple sentence, paralysis by analysis. If you have too much data, you have so much data that is overwhelming for you to make sense of that data, the technology that you are getting, uh, that you are using is, is way too much for your program. So the way that to tackle this is first, answer a question that you already have. Second, the requirement to the company, the technology company that, uh, that you decided to implement has to imply that they have a, a, a process, call it API, call it whatever you want, that is skipping the step of having human beings creating CSVs and uploading the CSV into a, into a database. Because that's time consuming. That's telling you that that gap between data collection and data reporting and data uh, report generation, it's gonna take in between 30 minutes if it's immediate, and up to hours. So the, the actionability of that information is, is not immediate. And that's, that's very important. I mean, you have to have a technology that when you collect the data, ideally you have real-time information, but when that is not possible, you have a way that is automatically uploaded into in your data manager and the AMS system that you have and you have there build the, the report in whatever alarms or, or uh, communication system that you have set up, that it, it gives feedback immediately to the strength coach or the basketball coach uh, to change things. Um, th that's critical. I mean, having an automatic process from data collection, not, not having technology that lives in silos, another very common mistake, right? You have a, a VVT uh, system that you have to download that data and put it in your database, or you have a biomechanical um, uh, system that is really, really cool, but it takes you three hours to create the report and put it in. That's not actionable. That is not actionable. That's really cool for research. That is impossible for our uh, uh, context. It's impossible. Our pace is, we, we fly. Uh, tomorrow is, is a completely different uh, set, so we need that, that information. 
ideally real time, ideally automatic process, and it has to be answering a, a question. Um, if that is, if all that is in place, the, the next question for you is how you handle or how you create the report uh, that integrates such amount of data and from different sources. And that's a different question. Uh, is you need knowledge on statistics and, and pre-advanced knowledge on statistics if you are doing it yourself and your organization doesn't have a, a analytics department. But if you do have an analytics department, uh, and most professional teams do have someone that is expert on that field, um, you should engage them, not throw all the shit to them, but having them engaged to help you, how can we build a, a report that is not just looking at, I'm going to say the word, acute chronic ratio of, of RPE, uh, and I hope that Frank and Pelizzo is not, 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 it's not, it's not about to collapse. Um, <laughs> no, I just make it, to, just using it. Um, whatever the metric you're using, but you have to have the right report that integrates everything properly because uh, with experts that know how to manage this data, and if you don't have the experts, it's on you to learn how to use that. And that leads us to, okay, what skill sets do I need? Do I need to, is Excel enough? Or, or do I need to have R or Python in my toolbox? Well, it depends on your organization. Um, if you have a huge amount of data, you will see, you will try with Excel and it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work, it's gonna get stuck, it's gonna get frozen. Uh, and the, the graphs are great, but it takes five minutes to actually open the file. That's not gonna be implementable. And so uh, that it's gonna force you to lead, to, to learn the minimum amount of R, Python, SAS, whatever the platform you want, there are a lot, lots of them, um, because these are platforms that manage huge amounts of information. Do you need to be a data scientist? No. Do you need to be a computer scientist? No, but you need a minimum because we are objective thinkers that need information and we need quick ways to give that information and that feedback. So I think that learning tools that speed up that process uh, makes sense. It's, it's, I, I use this analogy all the time. Is it necessary to be an expert of Excel to be a sports scientist? Well, it's not necessary, but it's better to use Excel than a calculator, right? It's the same. Now, in 2020, is it necessary to have R? Well, if you have R or that kind of programs, you will go faster than with Excel. Calculator, Excel, R or those type of systems. It's not a must, it's a good skill set to have in your toolkit, if that makes sense. So that, you've answered my question because my next question was going to be, in 2020 for the up and coming sports scientist, is learning to code the best use of time to get a job, keep a job, make yourself indispensable, having them sort of skills? Um, I think that Sports scientists, the most that they have to spend time on, and I'm going to be controversial now, is on, on how to improve uh, social skills and empathy. That's the first step. Because if you don't have the buy-in from players, coaches, and strength coaches, and, and medical staff, it's over. Your job is over. It doesn't matter how good you are with R or Excel or with your calculator. Uh, it's not going to work. 
So the first thing that you have to invest time is making sure that you understand the context and the needs in your organization. Now, once you're good at that, um, and it's trainable, it's something that you can get better. No, I'm very, uh, uh, I'm not very social and I like to be with my laptop. If that's the case, you will have a hard time in a professional sport because professional sport is about relationships and getting buying from the players and, and convincing the coaches to use the technology that will give you the data to produce nice reports that will change the season. Your end goal is not to create a beautiful report. Your end goal is to improve and optimize decision-making in your organization. So, and for that, you need to understand context. And for that, you need to improve your social skills to communicate to across departments, across departments. That's why I think that sometimes it's not necessary, but it's good to be kind of a generalist. Um, And and the book, Brain explains it very well. The the more, uh, the easier or the more comfortable you feel talking with the different departments, you will achieve that interactivity that is the unicorn in any organization. It's the interaction between all departments, interaction between front office, analytics departments, basketball coaches, strength coaches, medical, business side. And when all that information starts to flow and communicate, then you have to ask the question, okay, what's the best program to use all that information? But if you don't get that interaction, you, you, with Excel, you are fine because you will have three rows of data. <laughs> yeah, but very true. You got me interested then when you said about um, social skills. I'm, I'm interested. You perked me. Um, what was the book? What was the book that you mentioned just then? Uh, Range, uh, David Epstein. Range, David Epstein. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So you, you say that these kind of skills can be taught. This has come up a couple of times. Have you any experience of been the person that's teaching them or seen any good practice for maybe younger sports scientists that maybe do struggle with that social side of things and do struggle to maybe form them relationships or create new relationships with new members of staff? What would be the first part of call for you for, for, for anyone looking to, to improve them kind of skills? Yeah, I, I think reading about it, uh, reading about empathy and, and understanding others and uh, emotional intelligence and the different types of intelligence and collective thinking and so on, that those are topics that you can grip about them. But the easiest action uh, for a department, for a young sports scientist is, and this is the recommendation that I give to everyone in, that I work with, especially when they start, so when the players are in the weight room, you are in the weight room. You are not doing Excel charts and writing code. If the players are in the, in the weight room for two hours a day, you have to interact with the players. You don't need to be their friend if you are not comfortable, but you, you offer your help, you are spotting up, you are helping with BBT, with the data, wherever you feel comfortable, but you have to force yourself to put you in a position where you have to interact with human beings. Otherwise, it's very easy to get in your uh, office writing code and forgetting and just focusing and narrowing your view into that beautiful chart and, and making sure that you're not missing a comma in your code. That's, that's important, but debugging the code can be done later. Um, Interacting with your players, it's only one opportunity, and it's when the players are in the building. Uh, that applies with the players, which is the easiest one. 
but also with your with your uh, colleagues in the department. So you have to find, you don't need to uh, uh, read any book. You have to find in your schedule time to spend, uh, to have conversations. And, and if you want to call it serendipity, call it, use whatever word you want, but you can talk about personal stuff, you can talk about reports, you can talk about training, you can talk about whatever you think, but find a way to interact with your colleagues because that will give you good ideas on how to do better your next report, guaranteed. Um, and on top of those two things, which is forcing yourself to have those interactions, then read about empathy, emotional intelligence, but that's secondary. I mean, the first is action and the second is reading. When you first came to the Spurs, how much time did you spend with the coaching staff to understand them, their methodologies, their thoughts, their experiences, because they were NBA champions, so there's plenty to learn there. We, did you dedicate time to sit with them guys, talk shop, and just absorb? To be that honest, um, so I came from a very different uh, environment. I came from an environment in Spain. I worked with the same coach for several years, so we knew each other extremely well. I knew exactly how the week was for him, tactically speaking and technically speaking, which helps a lot. And, and I was the one literally in charge of writing the, the, the session, the basketball session, and designing the week. And the coach was the one putting the technical and tactical content for the team. So that was the level of integration that we had between us. Uh, I was completely new here, so I, was, I, I tried to be very respectful with everyone's time. And I spent a lot of time, months actually, um, uh, learning from with silence. So being a present there, but not interfering with uh, anyone because it's very common that when the, the role is new and they, they listen to the word scientist, there's like a, like a negative reaction. He's the guy with the numbers. Uh, uh, <laughs> And no, I, I'm not a zealot of science. I love science. I love uh, the best ways to generate new knowledge. But science also is slow and, and we need fast pace. So I, I try to find the, the best way to learn more to provide objective information. And the way that I found personally, and this can change depending on the organization, is, is um, with, with very respectful silence. Once... They saw me not as a threat, if you call it, if you want to call it. Um, it was easier to open discussions. And probably the first discussions weren't at all about basketball, as I said before. It, it was more learning, okay, you just won an NBA championship. That's pretty cool, right? So, uh, and, and, and learning from, from the informal conversations to get formal uh, information. Um, that's also the way... I am personally, it's not, this is not an advice, a generic advice. I, I'm, I'm pretty, I like to work in the shadow. I don't need the spotlights and, and learning first and talking second. I think it's a general good advice. Excellent. I've got one last topic for you, which may be big. It may be small, but we'll see how it, we'll see how it goes. And that's high-intensity interval training based on <laughs> our involvement with Martin and Paul. We mm -hmm. um, hit science. They'll enjoy that. I've given them a shout out, so they can they can pay me later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> pay us, pay us. Sorry, pay us. Um, <laughs> so to start with, just to set the scene, Prince. So so team sport environment, whether that be whatever it may be, but your your guiding principles 
when it comes to HIT training? The, the first thing that I say, and this is something that maybe uh, uh, it's, I think we are, we are on, the, on the same page with Martin and Paul, but um, in team sports, the, the way I put conditioning in general is, is based on specificity, how, how similar it is to the actual uh, requirements or, or, or game. Uh, and, and I think that the metabolic, um, obviously is important, but it's not the priority number one, meaning the way that we build conditioning in, in any teams that they've been in Spain with the national team and, and here, it's not as much of, let's try to build a program to improve the, the aerobic threshold or the anaerobic threshold or the VO2 max for this player. That's secondary. And we know what's the emphasis of that exercise in those uh, areas, but it's not the other way around. With this, I mean that how you integrate sport-specific movements, decision-making, the court, the ball, and the teammates are step number one. And step number two is the, the physiological um, uh, aspects of that task, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. to, do, to do that, in, in, in we, we, I wrote a paper in Spanish, in Catalan actually, in, back in, in, 20, in 2009, um, explaining the foundation of this. And, and the foundation of this is based on Paco Cirulo. It's a methodologist thing, very popular in Spain. Um, Paco Cirulo, Gerard Moras, another methodologist in volleyball, same structure, and Julio Tos, uh, a strength coach, pretty popular, um, that he applied it specifically for strength. Uh, based on these three authors, um, I did my own adaptation for basketball. And then in 2013 with Lorena Torres, um, we did the conditioning part and the strength part. So there are two papers trying to explain how to progress in specificity, and we have different levels based on those four authors that goes from, from generic, directed, special, and competitive. And basically what helps you is to say, okay, how close you are to mimic the game demands. Are you above the game demands or you are below the game demands? And the main reason of this is not physiological. And this is very important to keep in mind. The main reason to do this is to have the coaches, basketball coaches, engaged and make them understand that there is a continuum. There is no strength, conditioning, player development or skill acquisition and the rest, and team practices and game. No, no, no. Everything is part of the same player development, from more generic to more specific. And you can split that in a strength focus or conditioning focus. But don't forget that when you are actually running on court, and doing aggressive change of directions uh, all out, which is part of one of the contents in our conditioning program or proposal, um, you are also developing a strength, specific strength. And this is very important also to, to understand for the strength coaches. So our goal with, with, the, with, the, uh, with the power and uh, the strength um, paper and the conditioning paper was to put together everyone in, involved in the player development process. Basketball coaches, strength coaches, medical staff, uh, sports science. Trying to explain that we have to be with more or less emphasis in each one of the levels, all have to be involved. And you can cover 
every need for the player from social, cognitive, technical, conditioning, with one task. But you have different modulators. These tasks will be more social and fun, and then we will put in the warm-up, but uh, and then the strength and the conditioning will be very low in that modulator. And this is for uh, sprint interval training, that Martin calls it, and Paul calls it, and we will use a ball, uh, with one on zero, and we will do this specific movement, but it's in the same continuum. Um, I think that that's a game changer once the organization, and it's not one person, it's when the organization clicks and understands that there is a continuum, and the strength is everywhere, and the strength is part of conditioning, and conditioning implies a strength, and there are, you don't need to understand aerobic and aerobic threshold, VO2 max, or, or deceleration force, acceleration force, uh, hypertrophy. Everything is part of the same and you have to build it as a whole. And, and I think that that's what we tried and we keep, uh, we, we are working on, a, on another paper on that regard. It's trying to have everyone involved in the player development process. Um, and I think we are very proud of that chapter and we thank Paul and Martin to give us the chance to share it because they, they are the rock stars and you too. So it's good that you give me, you give me the chance to share this thought. But I think that's the beauty. Don't go too functional because that's crazy, but you have to understand the process between generic and, and competitive. So just doing this down for a simpleton like myself, uh, when, you, when it comes to designing that sort of practice with all these different departments or different practitioners involved, how do we then, it sounds complicated, well, it doesn't. It sounds simple, but then thinking about it from a, a practical point of view, with all these different inputs to actually getting a drill that does what you want it to do on, yeah. on paper, and then implement it. Yeah, the, the the easiest way to understand what we are trying com to communicate is is the following. So, if you if you have every exercise as we do. Um, and we are not the only ones. Everyone has a way to classify. They have a drill book to say that these are the demands for sprint distance, high speed running, acceleration, deceleration. And then we add one more that is, let's call it a specificity or cognitive load, some authors call it, um, being just to simplify five on five, official five on five, official game is a 10. And then Doing a leg extension is uh, 0 0.5. And you have uh, all kinds of uh, exercises. Swimming is, uh, is a 0 0.75 uh, because it's unrelated to basketball. And then you have every exercise with those values, the, the, the physiological metrics, if you want to call it, or the metabolic requirements, and then the cognitive requirements. When you try to convince a strength coach or a, um, a basketball coach on how we structure the week, and how you find the balance between one thing and the other, um, you will find that sometimes you, if you have no control, depending on the methodology, obviously, but just being generic on the, on the explanation, that sometimes we are too specific. We, we, there are coaches that just play games, a scrimmage all the time, couple free throws in between, um, and that's it. So you will have that, if you have 60 minutes practice and you have 40 of those minutes are um, actual five on five uh, and a few free throws. You have that the value for that session is very close to 10. It's going to be eight point something because you are playing all the time, right? 
but we know that overusing or being too specific in strength and conditioning instead of complementing what's happening on court can provoke overuse injuries. So if you, if you show that graph showing that today was very close to game demands to the strength coach and the strength coach, yeah, but I, I had for today planned to do power and, and plyometrics for this player. Wow. But you know that the demands on a, on a, on a game is jumping high-intensity accelerations, decelerations, lots of power. I mean, it's really hard for you to mimic the power that the guy has been doing on court right now. And you explain that to them. You, it's very easy to explain, to convince them that they are actually overdoing the same orientation. And that applies for conditioning as well. So, and, and it's reverse. So how can we find the happy middle for, because we all talk about individualization. What is individualization? Well, in order to individualize, you have to know, first of all, the loads, metabolic and cognitive for that session, but not only at team level, but at player level. Now tracking technology can allow you to tag the players and we do that, all the teams do that. And then you will have, in basketball, it's the best example, we have 10 players playing basketball, but you have a roster of 15. So there are five players that are sitting. So if you only use the team practice cognitive load, you will have 8.9 for everyone. And you will apply the same criteria with the strength coach. No one will do plyometrics or power. And that's not true. So there are five players that can actually do it because they, they, they weren't exposed. They, their load actually is two. So they can actually, and probably they would benefit of doing that because they didn't have exposure. So that type of conversation is what the numbers and the, and the structure that we are proposing in the strength and conditioning papers are trying to show you. It's a way to everyone involved in the player development process, not just look at the process with the narrow lenses of strength, conditioning, player development, or team practice, but looking at the bigger picture and seeing the exposure of every single player and how we better complement each one of the players to have the whole spectrum that is required in, 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 in team sports. That makes sense? Makes absolute sense. Superb. Thank you for that. Um, we're coming up to an hour and a half. I've actually kept you because we started chatting beforehand, which I've kept you far too long. So just around just to round this up, because I know you're you're a busy man. If anyone wants to have further chats with you, get in touch, follow your work, where's the best place for them to go? Is Twitter the best place? Yeah, I'm not the most active guy, uh, but but I'm there. I'm there. I read I read um almost every day. So yeah, and I try to share everything that I do there. So yeah, X shelling, at X shelling, that's, that's my handle. Cool. And any, any research, you mentioned one or two there, but any research projects coming down the pipe that people can Yeah, I think that it's about to, it's about to be published probably next week. Uh, we just finished with Sam Robertson, uh, um, uh, like a framework on, on decision support systems and, and, informed decisions uh, in professional organizations. Um, pretty um, detailed, it's kind of a review um, on how to, what check marks you have to follow for when developing a decision support system in, a, in an organization, which it's a little bit of a, everything that we discussed, technology, data management, workflows, uh, implementation, uh, integration, 
etc. So it's it's about to be published, uh, and then lots of other things uh, with uh, related to. Uh, now I'm doing research on on informed decisions and and yeah optimization of decisions uh, in organizations. So a um, couple more papers in the oven. So just you and Sam on that first one you mentioned, or is there more more often yeah, on that? Yeah, just Sam, Sam and me. Sam superb. Sam yeah, is Sam. fantastic. Sam is yeah, great. Good colleague, good friend. Brilliant. A rock, a rock star like you, actually. Oh, stop it. He is he's a good guy. He's a great guy. I've spoken to him a couple of times. Met him over here actually when he came when he came to the UK. So that was uh, that was a pleasure. But thank you very much, Javi. I will let you get on with your afternoon. It's afternoon there. And um, yeah, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Thank you, Rob. And, and thanks again for what you do. I think that this platform is awesome and having access to so many brilliant um, minds is really cool. And this is the result of technology as we were speaking before, right? I mean, it's really cool to have so much uh, free access. So thanks, Rob. It's my pleasure. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 299 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So big thanks to Joey for giving up his time. I know that there was a little bit of time where we could have done this podcast during lockdown, but this was actually done during a time where uh, there were guys transitioning back from from work at home to actually in the facility. So Xavi was rushed off his feet. So really appreciate him giving up his time to come on for a chat. Also big thanks to the sponsors today for supporting this episode. As I say every week, the, the podcast could not run in its current form without these guys. So really appreciate their support. Episode 300 coming up next week. So I've got something planned for you, which I think is really exciting. Um, but make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will chat to you next week.